In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, please be seated. Today's talk is to be about salt and light. I know a little about light, I know less about salt. Well, it's never stopped me in the past. Now, what does Jesus know is what interests us. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, I must disagree with our Lord right now and say that when you live in this part of the world at this time of the year, salt that is meant to be thrown down and trampled under people's feet is very good indeed to have. <laughs> However, whether or not it has taste is something I've never tried to find out. And I'm not sure that I would exchange it on our dining table, those odd times when we put together something rather special, in one of those elegant little salt cellars that uh, Carolyn's grandmother uh, bequeathed to us. I don't think it would fit so well in the silver spoon as that lovely uh, Meldon salt that someone gave us that comes from the UK at a place where they've been naturally uh, harvesting salt from the sea since the time of the Romans. Beautiful stuff. It looks very nice. And uh, for the price of that Meldon salt, you could buy a ton of road salt, if I say so. So there may be something to this. Salt having lost something, what is the essence of salt? What is it that makes the one salt so much more prized in the world's eyes, the other is indeed meant to be thrown out and trampled under people's, uh, uh, people's feet. Jesus goes on to apply the same model to the other items in his list. You are the light of the world, he says. The message is the same. There's light and there's light. In this case, it's how you place it in the room. You can either lift it up and it will fill the room or you will cast it down, you'll put it under a, a, a bushel basket, as he says, and it won't do you much good at all. He applies the same thing to cities, which should be on hilltops. And he goes on to talk about good works, which, although they give honor to God, should be imitated, and they will also give uh, honor to those who do them. It's the motif that seems to run through it is if something is good, it's worth lifting up, it's worth celebrating. And God hallows things, he hallows the essence of things in a very special way. If they're good things, and if they're the best of their kind, well, he may be going further with that. He says about the law, again, the same thing. If you treat the commandments casually and just let them down, if you like, uh, you will not be treated well by the Lord who gave us the commandments at the end of time. But whoever treats them with care, treats them as something of great value, lifts them up and teaches them will be called great. Now the law and the prophets, by the way, is a kind of acronym in a sense. There's the proper word, which I can't remember. It means all of the scripture in a sense as typifying some of it. And Jesus has already told us what is to be done with the law and the prophets. They are all subsumed by the very short praise he gave us, which is called the, the, the summary of the law, and that's that we're to love God and love our neighbor, those two things. 
And he's saying that the spirit and the letter should be able to work together in this. Um, you need to have them both, but never the spirit at the expense of the letter or the letter at the expense of the spirit. I'll expand this a bit. When the spirit is there, the thing is what it is, what it is really meant to be. And what it is not, there is only a shadow or positively a foretaste of what may be. There is the world as it is and the world as it ought to be. The world as we know deep in our hearts, it ought to be. And the one that we know in our hearts, this spirit-infused world, is the world that guides us as we make our way through this world outside, which is some way its shadow. Now, I don't want to sound too platonic, but common grace says that God has given this sense of the common good to all, all humanity. It slumbers there deep in the depths of our being. And when the word of God, Christ, comes into our grasp, if I can put it that way, suddenly everything is set free. And that word, that deep sense of the rightness of things, of the good of things, of the truth of things, is suddenly set on fire. It's released. It's given to us as a power. The important thing is that we do indeed know what the world should be, if you like, whatever it is, however it presents itself, that we have an innate, immediate apprehension of it. Karl Rahner says that children have this innate sense of the rightness of the world, of a God-centered world in which everything that looks like the new creation is already in place. They somehow lose this in the so-called growing process, something he bemoans. However you make it through the growing process, the tragedy of life is that the shadow should try to pass itself off as the reality, the only reality by which all things are judged. As we grow older, that sense of this beautiful creation with God at its center is somehow beaten out of us. And the world outside is brightened up and made to look very big and very real and very overwhelming. It is, in fact, darkness. And the darkness can invoke all kinds of powers to keep everything in place. And those powers, too, have so engrafted themselves into the core of our beings as to seem innate. And the world gives them pride of place. As we are enculturated from birth on, the world finds fine words and striking images with which to perpetuate its primacy on our thinking and our living. This is the way it is, we're told, so you better get used to it. You better figure it out, how to manipulate it for your own good, because everybody else is trying to do the same thing. Paul writes, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That power often looks like weakness, a continuous uh, thread through the scriptures, and that's what puts people off, even in the church. The key phrase is coming, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. 
None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. None of the rulers of this age understood. He's saying they didn't know what they were doing. When they took the son of the living God and nailed him to a cross, the son of the living God tells them as much from the cross. He says to the father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now we're getting somewhere with this, I hope, and then I want to stay where we've got. There is reality, and reality can be known better or worse to a greater or lesser degree. I am saying that reality reaches its climax when that reality is the closest to things the way they ought to be, and in some sense, the furthest away from things as they are. However good things are in this world, however, like salt losing its saltiness, reality can dissipate into unreality. The sense of the world as it should be can animate more or less the world in which we live and breathe and have our being, the life we live every day. It's that sense of realness, of essence, of rightness. There's wonder caught up in there. One phrase I like very much, a bit dense, ontological density to crib a phrase from Lubach. It just means that this world is richer, it's more compact, more concentrated, more full of energy and power, even though it just exists in our hearts as some kind of imperative. But it's the essence that makes things more and more real and gives to things in the world, however much they can take, the quality that makes them more of what they are. It gives them their isness, their right to really claim to be what they represent themselves as being. It gives them their weight and presence, their substance and essence. I'm getting very platonic, and I apologize. We'll see if I can get myself out of it. As long as we have this discerning palate by which we can taste the saltiness in salt, smell, sense in some way the presence of the spirit in things and the spirit by which all things were made, the Holy Spirit is to be found in everything, then we are susceptible to the reality, to the word of God. We can know it, the word and the world of God. Another word for what the spirit is doing here in the sanctification the sanctioning of this alternate reality which we have within, not an alternate fact, mind you, which awaits its realization in time and yet already forms the substrate to everything we too feel and touch, more or less. Another word is the reign of God, the kingship or the kingdom of God. The world is not that, neither is the church. But we all have a sense of what it is and we're all here because we want more of it. Yes, the salt this world serves up has lost its saltiness, and the light this world shines has certainly been put under a basket. Here's the problem. We adjust. <laughs> we get used to it, right? We forget what it once was. We forget what good is. We forget what the standard can be. We adjust our sight and we adjust our taste so quickly to what is served up. The word we use now is we normalize things. What was unthinkable becomes not just actual, but normal, the new normal. We're going through one of those periods of normalization right now, and it's causing me to lose a lot of sleep 
and find a lot of prayer because you just get dulled to the degradation of the world you're in by what's going on. And you say, that's as good as it gets. I'll tune everything down. If that's high, I'll tune down to it. That's the history of culture, of cultures, of tribes and states and nations, states and nations. They have their peaks and they have their valleys. But there's only one kingdom of God. It has never quite become normalized, which is its problem, its strength. And yet its precepts, its attitudes, its perceptions are the real measure by which reality is judged. We find the threshold of the kingdom in our hearts. The spirit makes their a liminal space. Yet they are ultimately subliminal as well, subconscious, so taken for granted perhaps that they are unknown to us. Yet at a deeper level, we ache for just such a reality to make itself manifest. And it is the task of every generation to reclaim that reality, to lift it up. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The depths, bathos is the word, the very depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one, this is a wonderful word, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. If you don't have that spirit alive and kicking through salvation in Christ, all of your wisdom is rather suspect and of limited use. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. That's what we've received. Not the spirit of empire, very much on display, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand, we might know the things freely given us by God, and knowing them, know what we're doing and why we're doing it. Because the most beautiful things in the world, the most noble precepts of any great culture, can be positively pernicious if they're used in the wrong way. What Paul is talking about is something given by God, freely given, grace granted, charistenta, gifts given from God's depth to our depth, deposited there to be discovered heuristically in our search for knowledge. The things we learn to help us make our way in this world will be here of no use whatsoever unless they were inspired by that same spirit. I'm trying to say simply what Paul is saying, worldly wisdom, forget it, it's of no use whatsoever. A little strong, but that's what the text says. Now, if we are not just to do the work of the kingdom, but to do it from the inside out, we need to know what we are doing. This is crucial, and to do that, I'll tell you the answer in five easy points. Forget it. We need the spirit as interpreter, as guide. Only the spirit of God can interpret the word of God and the commands of God to each one of you. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And these thoughts are ours, freely given for our knowledge that we might know not just what we are to do, but why. What is the motivation? What is the desire at the heart of God, which now springs to life in our hearts, to changing our hearts, filling our hearts with grace, 
filling our hearts with compassion for others so that we can do the commands that God has given us with a full-bodied, fully transformed, fully saved sense of what it is we're doing. Following Jesus is not a matter of either blind obedience or starry-eyed aspiring to impossible ideals, nor is it a matter of just settling for the best that this world offers and trying to slash everything in scripture down to size to fit it. I hope you've heard enough of the text today to realize that's not an option from beginning to end. Scripture doesn't cut us any slack. It's a matter of being inspired, of being met where we are by the God who has come down from the heights to live with us and in showing us how life may really be lived, real life really lived, one more point and I'm done. And the secret to making that life a happy one for ourselves, you want happiness, give it to someone else. It's that simple. Meet the needs of others. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? You can just see those walls going up. Not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then, and only then, shall your light break forth like the dawn. When we are ready to surrender the paradise that we feel in this nation is just within our grasp, ours for the taking, rightly ours, for the sake of attending to someone else's needs, then we maybe have come to know something worth knowing. Let's pray for that. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and then you shall call and the Lord will answer. Then we shall cry to the Lord, he'll hear us. He shall be present, you shall cry, and he will say, here I am. Amen. Please stand.